0: Coming to you live, but not really. It is all pump and no circumstance with Ryder Richards on com, the amateur hour you should never tune into. Welcome back. This is Ryder Richards with Let Us Think About It. Okay, we're going to keep tackling this problem of how individuals relate with their environment. As in, are we free? And what does that mean? How are we supposed to thrive and find an identity when our attention is often commoditized and manipulated? As well, if, you know, as Iris Murdoch says, man is the animal that makes pictures of himself and then comes to resemble the pictures. Well, then with corporations making these pictures of us, how do we find ourselves and our place in society? Well, part of the answer, as you all know, is learning how we got here so we can recognize our behavior. Now, another step is realizing that we rely on external environments to help us think and become. So today, we're going to keep talking about Matthew Crawford's The World Beyond Your Head and the concept of cultural jigs. Part one. Jiggy with it. (laughs) Have you ever used a jig? Jig. I know some of us have danced a jig. I mean, kids like me back, you know, when we were in 4-H on the farm, we're just out there yodeling and noodling. Well, we dance jigs <laughs> and then will smith showed up with you know jiggy with it and uh, my heart broke just a little bit Though <laughs> oh, no, that's actually a lie i just sang along and thought it was super cool but anyway back to jigs uh i personally do a lot of woodworking so i make cabinets or i can build entertainment centers or whatever else it is pedestals right i'm currently trying to build a window though for my shop and i have these tools that help me Because I mean, honestly, how else would I cut wood, right? Would I just use my teeth? (laughs) So for instance, a table saw is this great tool to use, but sometimes there might be this finicky little spot in a, you know, that you need to cut. And for some reason you need a handsaw. Okay, great, but this handsaw has a downside to it. And that's mostly because I don't have any skill with it. I'm not skillful enough or experienced enough to make sure that it cuts at like a perfect 90 degree angle while staying parallel and only goes certain amount of depth and it's all lined up on my marks. And so when I try to use a handsaw, often it looks like I just gnawed on the wood. So one trick here is to clamp another board on the line you're cutting, and you use that board as a guide, making sure that you stay basically 90 90 degrees up and down and you're cutting straight back and forth. Now, this is a very simple version of a jig and they can get much more complicated. Well, Matthew Crawford talks about experts making things easier for themselves by partially jigging or informational restructuring of their environment. So as you're working, in your workspace, you start setting things up around you and interacting with the environment. Now this can be information in the digital space, or it could be production in a workshop. You have to consider the workflow, and maybe you can consider like a chef in the kitchen and how they move. Not only does structuring your environment help you to be better at what you're doing, it reduces cognitive effort. So you really don't have to keep resolving the same problems. Where's that whisk again? And you don't have to waste energy with wasted steps. Instead, you just jig up a workflow. You keep your attention on point and you restrict the freedom of your wandering mind. So this is also how you build an environment that allows you to get into flow state, which is that magical state we all want to be in. Now, the dark side is of course, slowing into the opposite extreme, where we now use over-determined jigs. And this actually replaces the skill and the mind along with it. Cheap men need expensive jigs. Expensive men need only the tools in the toolbox. So this is similar also to Christopher Schwartz, uh, another author who wrote the anarchist workbench and the anarchist design book. And he says, if it's a choice between buying a jig or learning a skill, learn the skill. The goal is to move somewhere between autonomy and the assembly line, right? Somewhere between the maniacal loner off on your own, autonomous in everything you do, and being a robot, being a machine. Sure, you may think you want to be the 100% autonomous guy out there, right? Uh, But that's really not possible, and we'll talk about that more later. Instead, let's focus on somehow getting into the middle. Now Crawford says advanced cognition depends crucially on our ability to dissipate reasoning. Essentially our ability to think deeply depends on lightening the load on our mind. So to think complex thoughts, we need to unburden our limited capacity brain from having to consider everything. We have to allow it to focus deeply on a specific task. Now, the great achievements of knowledge that came before us and the practical wisdom, well, these are now embodied in complex structures around us. These are the structures of linguistics, politics, society, and institutional constraint. Now, these are huge complex jigs that are so common that they're mostly invisible to us. Yet, of course, we can focus on our daily job and our current task because we have outsourced some daily reasoning for some sort of structure and stability. Now, these cultural jigs, they guide and they constrain us. They allow us to focus more deeply on philosophy or maybe something like how the arrow of time is linked to heat exchange, you know, or even more profound questions like, why do you never see a rabbit wearing glasses? Hmm, is that because I eat carrots? That's an old dad joke. Uh, Now, this is one more reason that no one can ever be 100% autonomous. These cultural jigs that even allow you to consider ideas like where you fall between autonomy versus assembly line, or even judge the meaning of the word autonomy, because we somehow relate it to freedom, well, all of this stuff has been shaped by the cultural jigs. Part 2. Cultural jigs. Do you remember Max Weber, the German sociologist who wrote The Protestant Work Ethic, and I've talked about him several times on the podcast? Well, growing up as a very conservative Christian in a small town, as I did, a lot of his insights ring true to me. Now, one of the things Weber pointed out was that there was a change in the way the church perceived wealth. So we went from the whole Jesus thing about camel through the eye of a needle, and it's about the difficulty of rich people getting into heaven, and somehow that was transformed into accumulating wealth as a sign of God's favor. So the status of your soul was visible in your portfolio. <laughs> in conspicuous wealth, this was proof of election to God's elite. Right. So now this ideology, this sort of ran deep in America. And this actually conflated being a good Christian somehow with thrift and freedom. So Benjamin Franklin says things like, be frugal and be free. And perhaps, of course, you can spot the contradiction there. But this kind of led to an entrepreneurial work ethic as a form of salvation. And over time, you stockpiled wealth. Right. And this wealth was synonymous with being in God's graces. So today we have actually reversed this concept of be frugal and be free. And of course, no, right, we did not go back to blessed are the poor, but instead we went into be free now and pay it off later. <laughs> so, yeah, it's actually moral now. It's, a, it's maybe even virtuous to somehow carry debt. So we have things like consumer credit and with a good FICO or credit score, This actually requires a mortgage. It requires a proof of debt carried long-term. So we now even have phrases like good debt, right? Such as mortgages or student loans. These are actually encouraged. Now, I'm not trying to make a moral judgment here. Something like, you know, the founding fathers got it all wrong and debt is from the devil. (laughs) I mean, even though it is. So yeah, anyway, if you want more on that, you can see our episodes on sacred economics. I'm simply pointing out a cultural change over time. We have dismantled the moral cultural norms held previously, and now the non-thinking lazy individual, quote, is looking for some sort of jig to guide them. And they are guided, of course. They are nudged, nudged by administrative actions. Now, there's this entire book called Nudge, and this is about how policy can be made to make up for lazy human bias. Now, Crawford actually calls this choice architecture, and this is the policy that structures your available decisions. For instance, if you start a new job with a retirement package, say they offer you a nice 401k, well, they find that people are often so laser blasé that they will not check the box to opt in, even though apparently it's in their best interest. (laughs) Yeah, so instead, what we do is we nudge you. We set it up to auto-enroll you, and then people won't even check a box to opt out. So what happens is there's basically no thought going on here. It's all default behavior and any action at all, right? Even checking a box requires just too much effort. <laughs> and of course, this baffles really rational people, right? Because of these really nitpicky people, it drives them crazy. How could you not see the long-term benefit of a 401k plan? So we, the smartful people in charge, right? Uh, we must help the average person help themselves. We make policy and administrative decisions to nudge them into being virtuous and responsible. Yes, yes, we will save you from yourself. The problem here, as Crawford describes, is one of character. So a question for you. If a New England Protestant is dropped into Tahiti, do they maintain their frugality and their righteousness? Hmm, well, probably not, right? (laughs) Because oddly enough, character seems to come from habit which we have discussed is basically a predictable or reliable pattern of responses developed over time to solve specific problems. Habits solve problems. Crawford says habit seems to work from the outside in from behavior to personality. It is actually the reverse of what we think. We think our inner self gives rise to our habits, but instead your behavior is shaped by your environment through cultural norms which of course then forms your character. And the circumstances that shape us? Ooh, yeah, these are often through administrative and cultural nudges that we're not even aware of. So to hammer it home even more, what this says about you as a person, right? Now, if you were auto-enrolled in your 401k and you never unenrolled by checking a box or anything else, well, you've never really faced down anything. You've never made a decision You've never really confronted temptation. Should I save for the future or have more money here and now? Do I trust this 401k? You have only allowed the virtues of the current system to be further stamped into your personality. You have fallen deeper into the rut in which your stereotypical life is laid out for you. Without the friction of making decisions, we don't develop character. We are developed by external design. Our acquiescence, our inaction, it allows our attention and priorities to be managed by others. Now, this is the manipulation of the attention pirates that we mentioned in the last episode, right? So living by default mode means being adrift on the current, readily swayed or shaped. The administration says, relax, we'll take care of you. While the corporation, with really no accountability to the common good, says, you have been softened up and now let us take advantage of you. Either way, as Crawford says, choice architecture will happen. We just need to be aware so we can choose our architect. Part three. How did we get here? In behavioral economics, I do these studies in mostly isolated environments trying to control variables, and the tests show that on average, we have very little skill at practical reasoning. So we outsource it. <laughs> of course, living in a capitalist representative democracy technocracy, you know, just a few of our cultural jigs, we have been habituated to hand over decision power to science specialists, or really to anyone, I guess, uh, because we just can't be bothered to think about it too much. Now, Crawford brings up that in World War II, this really shifted the way our country worked and thought about things. And after World War II, the left started this Project of Liberation. So they busily worked to unmask and discredit cultural authority, which means dismantling our inherited cultural jigs. Now these jigs were things like churches and family and trust in government and maybe even journalism, right? Uh, These things provided coherence for individuals. Well, now we have a lack of coherence. This lack of coherence means that individuals are at a loss for how they fit into society. Now, this is exactly the same problem Otto von Bismarck solved in 1871, and he did it by applying military bureaucracy to the German state. So individuals were running around in packs terrorizing each other, you know, just like Mad Max, and they were upending stability for everyone. Now, for a society to actually work, you need some base level of stability, some idea of shared goals and a sense of contribution towards those goals. Now, we might consider this kind of post-World War II this moment where a type of deconstructionism or post-structuralism began, right? Now, this project of liberation is liberation from all constraints, and this led to a new, unencumbered self. Well, of course, into this void, right, after the left dismantled the cultural authority, steps the right. And they offer up this idea to fulfill this kind of emptiness, right, this idea of the rational actor who maximized profit, Now, this is an economic solution to a cultural problem. So cultural authority's role is usually to regulate society as much as it is to sort of provide a framework for stability. So really, who regulates this ideal economic reasoning man, this rational actor? Well, free markets. (laughs) Which is, of course, some people's answer to everything. But anyway, so what happens here is we dissolved institutional morality. This is generations of accumulated wisdom, which to be fair, had been pretty repressive because they became institutionalized. And we replaced all this with competitive economics. Now, as we know from the 80s, free markets deregulate everything. Now, our increased liberation, yeah, that has deregulated us, which basically means that we now have to spend more time and energy and attention self-regulating. Well, how's that going, right? (laughs) Well, Crawford says, The result is we're fat, in debt, and more divorced. (laughs) So that's dark, but anyway, in this time of the individual as their own self-referential cultural authority, in the time of the liberated autonomous individual, you now have to have self-discipline. But of course, we're in an economic time period now, so money solves everything. So we can actually relieve the burden of self-regulation by payment for cultural jigs. So consider paying an accountant so you can relieve the burden of taxes, which in turn can actually make you more irresponsible and less self-regulated, but of course by paying them you can also avoid going to jail. (laughs) And if you have enough money, they can actually shelter your wealth from taxes, allowing you to get richer while being less responsible. So you kind of double this class luxury of outsourcing self-discipline to pay for things like tutors or chefs or fitness trainers, right? We pay for others to nag us, feed us, and make us smarter. Or maybe you want time to think, right? Now, as mentioned in the last episode, you can pay for silence at the airport by accessing the first class lounge. Or how about something like this? Go on a three-day meditation retreat. I mean, who can afford that? Now Earlier, we talked about dismantling cultural authority for liberation. This was done by both the left, dissolving cultural, traditional, and parental authority, and the right, deregulating state authority in favor of markets. Yet it seems that somehow the disciplinary functions of our culture still exist. What does Crawford mean by that, this uh, disciplinary functions of our culture? Well, what he talks about is there's a cultural cost for not having discipline. If you can afford a therapist to help save your marriage, well, this might actually help you raise your kids and get them into pedigreed schools. And then at some point, you're passing forward social capital as well as financial capital that can allow the next generation to pay for others to regulate their discipline. Now, this ensures a dynastic succession because you can actually afford better cultural jigs. In the 1950s, Right, We had this idea of Protestant thrift, we had parental authority, we had cultural shaming around gluttony. Yeah, these weren't great models, but they were also available to everybody. The need for discipline around finances, behavior, and consumption, these have simply moved from readily accessible churches, parents, and friends, into privately paid life coaches, therapists, and personal trainers. That's right, discipline has been privatized in the space left vacant from the culture wars. All right, thank you very much for sticking with me. Um, one more little example to sort of wrap up this episode and move into what we're gonna be talking about next time. Crawford brings up this example of a chef cooking in a kitchen. And the chef gets into this flow state, right? He's just chopping and he's spinning and he's handling like five tasks at once, all with impeccable timing. Oh, he's grooving, right? It's amazing. And all of a sudden, like he's savoring his own human excellence. Like, he's like, I'm a machine, but the actual thing is he's superhuman at this point. He is a human flourishing within the carefully modeled constraints of the kitchen. He can improvise. He is wholly absorbed and connected to his environment. Living skillfully requires that some things be settled. Yeah, we should be okay with having some settled jigs around us, right? Now, you can consider the whole kitchen as a jig for allowing heightened human flourishing. And Crawford really here, he wants to remind us that there is this ideal of freedom from external influence, right? This uh, liberated individual. Yet that doesn't always capture all the elements that contribute to an impressive human performance. Now on a larger level, this episode is really questioning this ideal of the free individual, pursuing their internal desires and maybe over-indexing on the world inside their heads. Crawford is really asking us to look at the external conditions that shape our character and individuality. So thanks for sticking with me. Our next episode is going to be looking more at the human individual. What exactly happens when we become skilled because there's really a kind of freedom in undertaking the discipline to hone your skills? How does our cognition how does our cognition shift when we are skilled? And what exactly is embodied perception or embodied knowledge? Now as always, thank you for spending some time with me, and I hope you really found this somewhat interesting. Now if you did, please consider you know, leaving a one-time donation or maybe even signing up for a monthly donation to support the podcast on LetUsThinkAboutIt.com. And of course, lest I forget, if you want daily wads of fuzzy wisdom delivered straight to your inbox. <laughs> You can sign up for emails at bellybuttonlint.blog. That's right, bellybuttonlint.blog.